Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and I would love to get a chance to meet you. So if we haven't met yet, I'll be up here afterwards. Come find me. I'd love to say hello and uh, get a chance to meet you. Uh, it's great to be with you. If you want to grab your Bibles, open to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're not sure where that is, you can start in the back and flip forward. That will be much easier. It's near the end of the Bible, one of the last couple books in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you. I'd love for you to grab that and uh, be able to follow along. And I would honestly, if you, don't, if you don't own a hard copy of the scriptures, take that one home with you. We really want everybody to have a copy of the Bible that they can hold in their hands. Um, and so we would love for you to have that. We'll be glad to replace that if, uh, uh, if you take that one home with you. We're in this series called Preaching the Gospel. Uh, Very straightforward. It's uh, what we call a practice series. What we mean by that is that uh, we want to not just learn stuff, but we want to do stuff. We want to step into the things that God's teaching us so that we would practice them. And that's always true to some degree, but practice series we specifically design with practice guides to give us simple exercises for us to step into the things that God's teaching us. So if you haven't grabbed a practice guide yet, they're out in the lobby right beside the annual report packet. And so you can grab one of those. You can also um, go find those online. You can get a PDF copy there as well. Um, We're well into the series, so I can't possibly review it. I'll just tell you if you are jumping in right now, it would do you good to go back and uh, do either the podcast or uh, YouTube to get caught up. Uh, What I do want to do is just a brief recap of where we were last week stepping into this week. So last week, we talked about contextualization. And all that means is that the message of the gospel always stays the same, but the method used to preach the gospel changes. It changes uh, depending on our time and our culture and the people that we're interacting with. There's a, a, a changing of the method to be able to hear the message, the message that is consistent in all times and all places. And I, I want to review that because um, there's, a, there's an invitation into going that comes with that. There was a kind of a theology built around that as well as a practice in that of contextualizing the gospel, taking the gospel to the people around us, whether that's our neighbors or friends or family members or people around the world, that, that we're invited into the taking. Today, I want to talk about the coming. What, what do we do when people come to us and why would people come to us? to ask about the, the way to follow Jesus. What does that look like and why would that happen? That's what I want to dig into a bit today, what it looks like to preach the gospel through our living in such a way that begs the question. And to do that, I want to ask first a simple question. I want you to think about either your life or the life of what, who you would call the average Christ follower in the world around you, whatever that would look like. Maybe that's somebody down the pew from you or somebody that you know that you would say, the, those are people who are following Jesus. How are their lives, your lives, different from the people who are not following Jesus? So somebody who would say, I'm not interested in following Jesus, how, how is their life different than your life? Or how is um, the, their life different than the life of the person that you would say, they are following Jesus? What's the, what's the difference? Historians tell us that the early church had distinct differences from the prevailing Roman culture around them. One of the reasons why they were so different and one of the reasons they grew was their distinctions. There were differences, historians tell us, both in uh, belief and action and also in attitude. So first, let's look at belief and action. Um, there's a historian named Her- 
Larry Hurtado, who wrote a book called The Destroyer of the Gods, and he says there are five characteristics that were consistent in the early church wherever they were. So whether the church in Jerusalem, the church at Corinth, the church in Ephesus, five characteristics that were consistent everywhere. The first characteristic was that they were uh, multi-ethnic and multi-racial. They brought in people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And that was really unique, particularly for a movement that started in Judaism that was uh, tended to be very cloistered. This was a very multi-ethnic faith where uh, churches would be made up of people that came from all kinds of different backgrounds. They were also multi-socioeconomic, meaning there were rich people and poor people together. And it wasn't just that they were together, that was unique enough, but they were consistently caring for the poor among them. Not by compulsion, but by uh, just a a way that they interacted with one another, the rich would care for the poor. There would just be a a sense of equalization that naturally came about uh, within the church. Number three, they cared for and valued the weakest among them, particularly the elderly and the newborn. The newborn, especially, the infanticide and abortion were major issues in the uh, Roman Empire. It was very common for a a set of parents to have a child and that child to die through exposure because they literally were just left outside to die. That was a common thing that happened. And the church not only didn't do that, they tended to come and rescue those children and bring them in and nurture them back to life and bring them into the church. And so there was this dramatic distinction They also, number four, had a very clear sexual ethic that was tied to the way that they viewed marriage. The church very clearly saw marriage as a a covenant commitment between one man and one woman for a lifetime, and your sexuality was expressed within that covenant. And if you think that in our culture, that's a little bit out of step, in the Roman culture, that was wild. Nobody did that. That was just crazy that the church, these followers of Jesus, would live where their sexuality was within the covenant of marriage. And finally, number five, the church in all of the places, regardless of what the pressures were on it, was always nonviolent. The church never responded to anything with violence. Now, that's fascinating because if you take those five characteristics and you chart them on our current political spectrum, Tim Keller first uh, recognized this, you you see two of them that chart to the progressive left. So uh, the the idea of valuing all ethnicities and uh, where they come from and their stories and seeing that as part of the uh, kind of the framework of belief, that's more of a progressive thought. And certainly the uh, idea of caring for the poor with intentionality tends to uh, chart a little bit more to the left left, but there's two of them that chart very strongly to the right. So um, the, the sanctity of life and the value of human life and the traditional view of sexuality and marriage charts a little bit to the right. And then, of course, there's nonviolence, which nobody wants, right? That's, that's purely un-American. We don't even have any sense of that at all. Uh, but, but what was fascinating was that there was this, uh, they were out of step with the culture around them, just as if we continue in the traditional way of seeing the, the Bible and the call to follow Jesus, we are out of step with the world around us. We don't neatly fit into one category or another. But it wasn't just belief in action, it was also attitude. There were things that happened within the early church that just made no sense. You can see it most clearly if you read the stories of the martyrs of the early church. You see a way of living that just 
is so distinct from the way the world lives. So there's a, a martyr from the early church named Perpetua, and maybe you are familiar with that name. Uh, she was in her early 20s, a young woman from a well-to-do family. Uh, she had gotten married, had a couple children, and was a follower of Jesus. And she was arrested in order to uh, make a statement to that Christian community, and she was asked to not even renounce her faith, but simply to take a pinch of incense and sacrifice it to the Roman God as a recognition of the fact that the Roman God was okay. The idea was Perpetua is well known within the society and she would be able to move this whole conversation forward. And what Perpetua said again and again and again was simply, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. And she refused to put the pinch of incense and so they said, if you don't do this, you will be executed. And she said, I am a Christian. I'm a Christian. And her father came to her and begged her, Perpetua, just take the pinch of incense. It's a little pinch of incense. You have a husband. You have children. Take the pinch of incense. And she said to her father, I am a Christian. And so one day, she was led out to her execution. And those around watched this young 20-something mom Sing psalms, declare the goodness of God as she went to be beheaded. Another story is Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. Tell me that is not a name and title, right? If you could be Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, like I'm, I, I aspire to that at some point in time. Anyway, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, was asked to renounce his faith and to be able to step in again to the Roman pantheon, and he refused to do it. And he was told, if you will not renounce your faith, you'll be burned alive, and Polycarp, the story goes, was tied to the stake and the flames began to envelop his body. And as the flames enveloped his body, he loudly prayed blessing over those who had lit the fire. What makes that happen? How do people like Perpetua and Polycarp and so many others have that kind of an attitude toward the world around them? And let me ask the more challenging question. How does a movement where people are being beheaded and burned at the stake grow exponentially? That's out of step with the culture around them and yet keeps growing and growing. The early church historian Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How's that work? Well, I want us to look this morning at a section of this larger letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a scattered and persecuted church. This was at a time in history, it wasn't quite to Perpetua's time or quite to Polycarp's time, but it was when, uh, when persecution was rampant within the Roman Empire and the church had to stand firm. We're just going to take a section out of it. I'm going to ask AJ to come and read for us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8, going through verse 17, I want you to listen to the context that Peter's writing in and the call that Peter makes on us. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, so if you have a different version, please follow along as I read, and always the invitation to simply listen and be blessed. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay reviling for reviling. 
On the contrary, bless. Bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, well, let him or her keep their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Let them turn away from evil and do good. Let them seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears. Oh, his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, well, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, to provide an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, respond with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, well, they may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, AJ. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we look into this rich text, would you guide our hearts and our minds and our spirits in Christ Jesus? Would you help us to hear your voice in the midst of our day and our time and our situation and the many situations of all of us as we gather? God, would you meet us and speak to us? Would you guard my words that they would come from you alone? that the words that come from my strength would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain, that we would be changed, that we would be more like you. And so God, do this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So there's a ton in this text, uh, some things that we'll look at as we go into the um, daily podcast this week, but for this morning, I want to look just at three aspects of the text. I want to first look at the rising hostility that is evident in Peter's letter. I want to look at the satisfied posture that we're called into and how that satisfied posture begs the question. So a rising hostility, a satisfied posture, and begging the question. So I want to start with the, the fact that not just here, but actually throughout the entire letter, if you, read the, if you study the entire book of 1 Peter, as we did seven or eight years ago, what you notice right away is that the entire letter isn't, isn't asking the question, what happens if persecution comes, or how do you respond when persecution comes, but it's, it's living in the midst of persecution. So Peter's talking to a church that is actively being persecuted, and it's a constant pressure on the way that they live. Persecution is just, uh, it's just part of the reality. And the question, I think, is fair to ask. We went through those five characteristics of the church. All of those are good things, right? 
There's nothing bad here. Like, the church is caring for the poor and bringing together different ethnicities and is valuing life and uh, is uh, kind of keeping to themselves as it relates to marriage and sexuality. They're not hurting anybody. And when, when, when they do come into conflict with the world around them, they're always nonviolent. So why in the world is the church being persecuted? Like, why has the church throughout the ages been persecuted? It doesn't make any sense. There's a British historian by the name of Tom Holland. Uh, he's uh, an atheist, uh, interestingly, and has written a massive book. It's about 600 pages long called Dominion, uh, which talks about the, uh, ba- basically sees all of history through the lens of Christianity. It's fascinating, uh, coming particularly from an atheist. I had the opportunity to read it over vacation, and it's, there's lots of stuff kind of perkling around in my head. But uh, here, here's a quote that was really helpful. He says this, distinctiveness in the age of an empire that proclaimed itself universal might well rank as defiance. Now, think about that. Distinctiveness in the age of an empire that proclaims itself universal might well rank as defiance. When when an empire sees what it's doing as the right thing for everyone, and there's no one that should be outside of the universality of that empire, distinctiveness, standing out from within there, is the same thing as defiance. This is important for us to get because we have a world that's rapidly moving this direction. Distinctiveness, when seen in the midst of an empire that sees itself as universal, might well rank as defiance. Why is the church persecuted? The church is persecuted because they're standing out because they're different. Gerald Zitzer is another historian. He uh, has a beautiful book called Water from a Deep Well. It's actually where I pulled the stories of Perpetua and Polycarp, although there are lots of different places. Um, In his book, Water from a Deep Well, he says there are four primary reasons that Rome persecuted the early church. They're on the screen in front of you. Let me just walk through them. Uh, The first one is that pagans viewed Christians with suspicion because they considered Christianity a strange and threatening foreign cult. Let let me make that simpler. They were weird. That was the problem. Like, they, they were really, really different than the world around them. And because they were so distinct, they seemed kind of like a cult. They seemed like uh, an organized, uh, kind of in the face of Rome uh, religion. I love the way Tim Keller says it as he uh, talks about the distinctiveness of the early church. He, He makes this statement. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money, right? It's this, it's this flipped thing where they, they, they saw the world through a different set of values. And those, that set of values set aside Christianity as though it was this, uh, this pagan cult in the midst of the larger Roman Empire. So that was number one. Number two, Christians practiced a way of life that passed implicit judgment on Roman society. Now that word implicit is really important because what's happening here is Christians are living life the way that they believe that they're called to live life, not judgmentally to other people, just living what they're called to do. Have you ever been with somebody who you know is doing the right thing and you're not? 
They don't have to tell you that you're wrong for you to feel that you're wrong, right? There's this implicit judgment. This, uh, th- this amago dei that we've been given, the image of God in Genesis 1 and 2, means that we inherently see some things as right and some things as wrong, and we, we have an inner compass that is there but often gets singed. And what had happened is the Roman culture had cauterized the conscience of the people, And so leaving a baby out to die by the elements didn't seem evil until the Christians came along and cared for the baby. And all of a sudden, there's judgment, not spoken judgment, but the sense of judgment, implicit judgment on my life because you're living in step with the way that God's created the world and I'm not. And so there was this implicit judgment that created the sense of tension with the larger Roman culture. Number three, Christian allegiance to Christ threatens Rome's hegemony. Now, you're probably, if you're not a historian, you're probably not using that word in regular sentence. But uh, basically, hegemony means this, uh, the, the idea of a kind of a politically unified uh, kind of central truth. So this kind of uh, society that was unified by uh, the, the Roman government and the Roman Empire, the sense of kind of unity within there. Sitzer, uh, he, he says it this way, he ta- talks about it this way, which I think is a little bit more helpful. He says, Rome tolerated religious diversity as long as the real religion of Rome was honored, which was Rome itself. Now get that. This is This is so relevant to where we stand today. Rome tolerated religious diversity as long as the real religion of Rome was honored, which was Rome itself. We live in a world that says we need to be completely tolerant of all kinds of beliefs and all kinds of people because your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And the only thing that will not be tolerated is is intolerance, right? So there's this sense of like, that like we all have to be on the same page, and if you're not on the same page, then that won't be tolerated. Or maybe look at it another way. All truth is relative. Your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, except for the fact that all truth is relative, and that's absolute, right? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, this is the world that we live in, and this was the challenge of the first century. Christians were living in such a way that um, they were pushing against the unity of Rome by no other thing than simply living the call that Jesus had given to them. And that's where number four comes in. It's related. The early Christians viewed their faith as ultimately and exclusively true, which threatened the popular pluralism of the day. Christians could have, with no problem, no persecution, and no pushback, said Jesus is a way to God but not Jesus is the way to God. The problem, of course, was that Jesus said he was the way to God, right? And so they didn't really have a choice. But the the idea of there being a way to God through Jesus was no problem at all, as long as there wasn't any pushback against the broader pluralism that said all of us are working our way to God in the ways that we see fit. I lay these four things out before you because they are, to differing degrees, strongly present as part of our current culture in our current world as we seek to live out our faith in the world around us. This is the reality that we live in. And that's why Peter, writing to the scattered and persecuted church in in chapter 2, said that their primary identity is as exiles, as foreigners and aliens, those who don't really fit 
in the world around them. And this is important for us to get because there's always this mindset that, that runs down underneath our hearts that says, if, it would if the culture would just shift this way and this way, if we could just make this change, if we could just do this thing, then this would be our home. And Paul says in Philippians 3, this will never be your home. You're a follower of Jesus, you're a citizen of heaven, and that's the only place where you can put your feet where you will be at home. Otherwise, you're in exile. You're on the outside. And that was the challenge. Because there's this rising hostility against the church because they're simply living the way that Jesus had called them to live. So the question then is, how did that grow? I mean, persecution starts to make sense when you start to walk through those four things, but how does that start to grow, and not just grow, exponentially, within a couple hundred years, be the majority of the known world at the time? How does that work? Let's go to verse 15. You're probably very familiar with the back end of verse 15. If you've been around church for a while, you can probably either recite or you're very familiar with the back side of verse 15. But um, we often miss the first part. Let me read um, actually the sentence coming into it in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Listen, this is verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And then the part you're familiar with, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. I believe the first part of the verse begs the second part of the verse, which is why we need to spend a little bit more time there because we tend to skip through this idea of what it means to in your heart set apart Christ as holy. What, what's Peter saying? What he's saying is that the church is identified as people who have been filled up, identified by, and cared for by the God of the universe. He has given us, in fact, Peter's gonna say in his next letter, you have, as followers of Jesus, everything that you need for life and godliness. You already have it. It's already yours. What, what he's saying is when you set apart in your heart Christ as holy, you have been filled up with everything that you need. Let me, let me say it a different way. Satisfaction flows from the goodness of Jesus, not our circumstance. Think about that. Being satisfied, having all that we need, is not based on our circumstance or the world around us. It's based wholly on the goodness of Jesus himself. That's why Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says, I have learned to be contented in all things, whether in plenty or in what. And I have a lot of stuff. I have almost nothing. I'm like dying or I'm uh, thriving. It doesn't matter. I'm contented in all things. I have every, and, and look, he's not saying we shouldn't have a lot of stuff. In fact, the same Paul that said that wrote to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 that we should enjoy all of the goodness of God, that he's given us gifts for our enjoyment. So he's saying, yeah, when you have a lot, enjoy that. It's wonderful. And when you have a little, it doesn't matter because our satisfaction is not found in our circumstance, but it's found in the goodness of God. Which is why a couple sentences later, when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it doesn't mean what your coffee cup and your wall hanging think it means. 
right? Um, we tend to read that as like, like, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So it's like, like the Superman verse, right? What Paul's saying is, um, you already have, I already have all that I need in Christ, so I don't need to jump over the building, right? I don't need that thing that I, need to, uh, that I feel like I need to accomplish. I already have it, therefore I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Many of you know the situation of our family, but let me explain it a little bit. Uh, we have four children, six of us total. Of my four children, the two youngest are teenage boys. The next oldest is a, a just past teenage boy, and the oldest is a girl who is also a college varsity athlete. So imagine what dinner looks like in the Cannell household. Just, just try to get your head around it. Um, let's just say there are large quantities of food being consumed very quickly all the time, right? This is just what's happening. And so there's this thing that happens as we get closer and closer to dinner, about maybe two hours or 90 minutes away from dinner, you start to hear the, the slow drum beat of, uh, of the natives are restless, right? Like, the, like, like um, how much longer to eat, how much longer to eat? Because they think that they're about to like expire, right? Like they're just like, they're, they're like, I need to eat something, I'm gonna die, right? And so it's this, this, this push, and then when the, the meal finally gets sat down, like, watch out, right? Like everybody's one person over another. And, and let me be completely honest. When I say they're doing that, I mean we're doing that, right? Me too, man. Like, let's eat. This is good, right? So we, we're all jumping in. My poor wife is over kind of like, okay, you people do your thing. Like, relax, you know, whatever. But the other five of us were in, right? Now, compare that, oddly, with Thanksgiving. It's going to be coming here in a couple weeks. When we have Thanksgiving dinner, we sit down around the table, it's very calm, and there's not a whole lot of like jumping over one another for food. We just like have a nice calm meal. Why is that? Well, we eat Thanksgiving dinner about four o'clock in the afternoon, and the rest of the family has started eating about 11 o'clock in the morning. They just start to eat, and they eat all day. They have an appetizer over here and a thing over here, and then, well, that turkey leg didn't need to stay there. I'll just grab that. You know, they just kind of work their way through all afternoon, so by the time they sit down at the dinner table, they're actually already full. <laughs> they, don't, they don't need to eat. And so we have this beautiful Thanksgiving dinner, and we're all like, yeah, 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 whatever. We'll just put it in the leftover containers. We're done, right? Because they're already satisfied. Christians in Paul's approximation, in Peter's approximation, are those who have already been satisfied in Christ. And so we're not sitting down at the, the table of the world around us and we're clamoring for acceptance or clamoring for financial gain or clamoring for power or clamoring for pleasure because we already have everything that we need in Christ. We've already received it. Jesus is himself our satisfaction. And yet, that's not a New Testament, but an Old Testament construct. So stick your finger in 1 Peter 3 and turn back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 34. There's a lot of places I could ground this, but I've had about a dozen conversations about this text with people over the last couple weeks, and so it's fresh on my mind. So we're going to work our way here. 
Um, I, I don't have time to give you the whole uh, setting, but this is, this is Moses having led Israel out of Egypt in towards the promised land. They'd gotten the promise of God, and uh, the Israelites were misbehaving, if you remember the story, misbehaving like by, um, by attributing all of the work of God to a golden calf that they made with their own hands and saying God doesn't exist, just this golden calf. They were being bad, right? And so Moses goes up, has a conversation with God, it's tense for a bit, but they work through some stuff, and on the back end of the conversation, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God, in this really odd way, says, I, I'm going to kind of answer your prayer. You can't see my face, but I'm going to put you in this cave, and I'm going to pass by you, and you're going to see my back. Now, any theologian who tells you that they have any idea what that means is crazy. Nobody has any clue what that means. I don't have a clue what that means. I, what's the difference between God's face and God's back? And how's he showing his back and his spirit? So how does this even work? And I have no idea. But as God passes by, in, in redemptive history, you have God having revealed himself to Abram, Abraham, as the God of the promise. And then you have God revealing himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 by his singular name, I am. Jehovah, or Yahweh. Yahweh is all that they have to go on. So now if you go to Exodus chapter 34, God's passing by Moses. Moses is in the cleft of the rock. And in verse 6, it says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Now you see the Lord in your text is all capital letters. That's the translator telling you that, that that's Yahweh. That's the 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 name of God, Yahweh, he's saying, uh, he passes before him and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We're going to stop there. We could keep going and we could do like literally months of study on what I just read. But God shows up to Moses and he says, here's my name, Yahweh. Yahweh, a God who is abounding in goodness and love and faithfulness that's overflowing to you. In fact, depending on your translations, you may see the word loving kindness in there. That's representing a, a, a Hebrew word that some have said is the key Hebrew word in the Hebrew Old Testament. That word is hesed. And that word has said it is impossible to translate. It's like this, the overflowing love of God. And the reason why you may see loving kindness is a couple centuries ago, they were translating, trying to figure out a word for has said. And they said, well, let's just make up a word. And they took loving and kindness and put it together. And that's become now part of our vocabulary, loving kindness, because of this verse. Because they were trying to express the, the, the has said love of God. What, what God is saying to Moses is, my nature is such that I am pouring my love into you that you would overflow with everything good that I am. That, that my very nature towards those who are my people is to be their complete satisfaction. You need nothing else other than me. Last week we looked at Ecclesiastes 3.11 
that says God has placed eternity in each man and woman's heart. And there's a lot of different things that that means, but one of the things that that means is that there's a longing that's built into us that can only be satisfied by God himself, and that's what he's talking about. The said love of God is being poured out in order to fill that hole. C.S. Lewis famously said, if I find within myself a desire that nothing on this earth can fulfill, the only logical explanation is that I am made for another world. And that's what he's saying. You will never fill up that hole in any other way. If you sit down at the Thanksgiving table and you try to fill up, it's never going to do it for you. But if you get just a glimpse of the chesed love of God, you'll be filled up enough that Thanksgiving will be a no thanks. I, I can fast today because I have already everything that I need. It's out of that satisfaction, out of this deep sense of already having been given everything I need by God, that the second part of verse 15 comes. So now, if you're back in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, the second half, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So all that stuff we just said is bound up in that phrase. And, and then he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter says, because of the, the, the fullness of what's in you, you should be ready to answer anybody who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. Now, the appropriate question to Peter would be, who wants to do what I'm doing since we're being killed, right? Like, if, I, if our people are being burned at the stake and beheaded, it's probably not a whole lot of people coming in here, right? So why is the question being begged, and yet the question was begged, why? Let me answer it in one word, joy. Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 11, said that my joy may be in you and that your joy would be full. That the chesed love of God would be poured out on us in such a way that joy would be the natural overflow. In John 10, Jesus says, I have come that you, have have, you would have abundant life or life to the full. That abundance of life is this overflow of the chesed love of God that's in us. That's the reason for the question. People are going to ask the question because it's weird to not need something from the world around you. Can I just tell you something? Then and now, the most dangerous people to the empire are people who don't need anything from the empire. It, for the people then who are living in the Roman culture, they don't need anything that Rome has to offer because they already have everything. And today, within the systems that we're living in and within the structure of the world around us, we don't need what's in the world around us because we have been fully satisfied in Christ. Which is why the question's begged. How do I get that? How, how do I get to the place where when I sit down at Thanksgiving meal, I don't have to grab but I can just sit back and rest? How do I live in the world in such a way that I'm not trying to gain power or, or face or some sense of you thinking of me in a certain way? How can I just be? Peter says, if you set apart in your hearts Christ as Lord and holy, your life will beg the question. So then, 
he says, do it with gentleness and respect. And I would make the argument that that invitation, which is a directive in Peter's language, do this with gentleness and respect, is actually far more of a description than a directive. Because if we are satisfied, we won't be judgmental. And we won't be vengeful. We'll be gentle and respectful as those who have received what Jesus has on offer. 